He wants to talk about science fiction. Anyway, shall we talk about the Hugo finalists? <laughs> we want to talk about science fiction, John. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode six of the Octothorpe podcast, a podcast about science fiction and SF fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have a letter of comment from Espana Sheriff, my wife, who attended a one-day convention called Wi-Fi Sci-Fi which was hosted by Anne Colette, and it was a mini-con consisting of a single Zoom panel in two parts, followed by breakout room cavi clutches. The panel had the topic SF and the pandemic, tackled by five panellists, and then the second half of the panel was on the same topic, but with different panellists. And then afterwards, you were assigned randomly to a breakout room with one of the panellists, and in Hispania's case, she talked to Cory L. Lee, who was charming, and then suddenly switched out to Adrian J. Walker, who was also lots of fun. This is the second Wi-Fi sci-fi event that has been run, and you can find more details at ancorlets.co.uk slash Wi-Fi sci-fi. I did not go, but I heard Hispania having a lot of fun. I believe I was playing board games on the internet uh, while that was happening. Is that because you are playing board games on the internet roughly 50% of the time you are awake, Tom? No, that, that, is, a, that is a vicious lie. Um, at least 25% of the time that I am awake, I am playing them in real life. So there you go. <laughs> I think this is the second Wi-Fi sci-fi event, isn't it? Yes. Clearly the first one went well if they've done a second one. And it seems like a kind of nice way to spend three hours on a Saturday afternoon. And it sounds like they've got the social aspects down a bit by just like randomly allocating you to a room and you have a chat, which is, yeah. Yeah, I, I am wondering whether this kind of mini convention will turn out to be a really viable way of doing programming in the kind of current virtual age because it means you can really pick and choose what panels you want to go to if if, if like three people a weekend run a panel with some socializing afterwards you can massively split the amount of effort between a lot of different people you don't have to have a centralized effort and you can pick and choose what events you want to go to which is potentially very cool I've done a lot of um zoom parties now and I'm coming to the conclusion that for kind of just having a good time, a number at around 30 to 40 is, well, maybe probably less than that, say invite 30 so that 25 or 20 turn up is really quite good because that's enough for three different solid conversations, which is all anyone's really going to get into anyway. And and when you have more people, you just up the level of complexity of keeping everyone organised and it doesn't necessarily do any better for people. So, so larger meetings aren't necessarily better. The advantage of great big conventions or great big gatherings generally is that more of the people who you want to see will be there, but you can actually set up a virtual event with just the people you want to see on a particular topic. I think for Zoom parties, it's also not quite the size of the room, but the people in the room. You need a certain amount of people in the room who are reasonably happy to sit there and chat on Zoom. And you probably have some people who are Sitting and chatting a little bit, but mostly sort of happy to listen. Like you need to replicate the dynamics of the conversation in the Zoom. If you have a quite full Zoom room, but no one kind of knows each other well and they're not actually chatting, 
then that's not going to work either. So the Wi-Fi sci-fi approach of having, all right, the author is in this room and you can chat to the author gives a sort of focus to them in a way that a general Zoom room party does not. I have just realised that I have never personally had the experience of being in a Zoom room and having nobody in the room being willing to chat. I didn't want to name names. It may be that not everyone's experience is equivalent. (laughs) Because I have, like, however much endless management training from, from years and years and years being tried to become a corporate clone and failing, I know I never find it difficult to start conversations in empty rooms. It's also true that you will never be in the, you know, when you when you have Zoom parties and put people into breakout rooms, you are never in the room you are not in. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. Like you never know what's going on in the other room. So you probably assume that all rooms are kind of chatting away happily. Whereas I have been in Zoom breakout rooms, which are a little bit quieter and you're sort of waiting for someone to get things going. The problem, the problem with a Zoom party, um, I think, uh, no, actually, the problem with a party is when you invite all of your friends and you're the only person that everyone knows. And so that means that you get the clicks. And if you've got like a couple of people who, who you're great mates with, but don't really know the rest of your friends at all, they're going to find it very difficult to interact. And that's true at any party. But I think it's also true in Zoom parties, where if you've got a group of people, all of whom don't really know each other and only really know the host and the host is in a different breakout room, that will obviously be a problem. Okay, so my most recent Zoom party was credited as specifically a chance for European and Australian and New Zealand fans to get together at a time which was more or less convenient for both of them, but not convenient for Americans. Because it had a structure, I think that helped somewhat with the thing. And I kind of pretended that they were there to help me plan my guff trip, which they weren't. They were just there to, it was just to to foster relations between European and Australian and New Zealand fans, which I think it did, though we didn't actually get any New Zealand fans, except for Ming and Smitty, who don't count. For those who don't know, Ming and Smitty both used to live in the UK before emigrating to New Zealand. And so counting them as New Zealand fans is obviously fine but may not be the New Zealand fans you're trying to reach out to in this particular case. I will also say on the topic of Australian and New Zealand fandom, we were recommended by Claire Briley a podcast called the Two Chairs Talking Podcast, which is hosted by David Grigg and Perry Middlemiss, who are ex-chairs of the um, of, of previous Australian World Cons. And I gave that a listen in between last episode and this episode and it's quite good they talk about books if you like australian people talking about books you may also enjoy it uh, so give it a look yes and they also i think record on a fortnightly schedule as we do and they have quite a lot 27 episodes so far so they're a bit ahead of us On the topic of things that have happened in recent times, the Hugo finalists came out and we touched on this in a previous episode, but we haven't really talked about it in any great detail yet. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And also the BSFA Awards were announced in a glittering ceremony on Zoom. I think three hours late because they timed their award ceremony to coincide with Zoom's first major outage since the start of lockdown which is a tiny bit unfortunate but i think they recovered quite well oh that's unfortunate did you actually virtually attend i did not because of the whole middle of the night issue i did not 
I did not because of the whole not being a member of the BSFA issue, which I, I become, I'm feeling increasingly embarrassed about, actually, because one of the things I have been doing in lockdown is that they've been running author readings to compensate for not being able to do their regular pub meetings on a Wednesday in the middle of the month. And I've gone to a couple of these and they've been jolly good. So I, I turns out that author readings are one of the things I quite like in lockdown. I, I, I like to be able to put on an author reading while I'm working with my hands. Which is also good because when I was more involved in the BSFA, one of the things people would generally say is the London meetings are great, but I live outside London and can't get to them. And so in lockdown, if they're now doing things broadcast by Zoom, again, they can have a slightly wider audience. Yeah, I think I say Zoom there, but I think it's actually Facebook Live. So now they will only get criticisms from people who are outside London and hate Facebook. It's the BSFA Vector Reading Series. And we should probably put a link in the show notes. We shall do that. So the BSFA Awards this year are great, all of them, I think. Um, the winner was of the best novel was Children of Ruin by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Best Shorter Fiction... This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Matar and Max Gladstone. Um, best nonfiction was The Pleasant Professor of Robert A. Heinlein, Farah Mendelssohn. And best artwork was the cover for Warism and Other Stories by Ian Waits by Chris Baker, who's obviously better known as Fangorn. Yeah, and they streamed it on Zoom, as we mentioned. It seemed to go well. I saw people talking about it on Twitter. I must admit I didn't watch because I am also not a member of the BSFA, um, although I am on the BSFA Discord. So, you know, maybe I should join up. And it does seem like they're doing some cool stuff at the moment. I should probably be on the BSFA Discord for that matter. God, that sounds like good people doing good yes, things on it. Yes, I think they need to plug it slightly more because I think at the moment it is rather quiet. I get the impression they're using it for their committee meetings. So I think um, it is being used internally by the BSFA um, and is therefore at least somewhat active. We, we should put a link in the show notes. Sorry, yes, I have read most of Farah's book, which I found pretty interesting. People keep thinking it's a biography, which it's not. It's a close reading. So it's probably of most interest to people who have read all of Heinlein's books, but quite a long time ago, because I think actually Farah coming to it with a fresh eye here in in the 21st century is quite interesting. I have read only This Is How You Lose the Time War, which I definitely enjoyed. But I think I enjoyed it, but it didn't kind of speak to me in my heart the way it has to a lot of people. I know it is one of those books that comes along occasionally and a lot of people really, really love it. And I merely liked it and really enjoyed it and admired it and think it's quite well done. I will read This Is How You Lose the Time War because it is on the Hugo finalists this year. So I will be reading it as part of my Hugo reading. I will read Children of Ruin because I read the previous book in that series, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed after a, a colleague uh, in my research group recommended it, um, which was called Children of Time. And that was that was an amazing read. So I do really want to read Children of Ruin, but I haven't got around to it yet. But I have been reading the Hugo finalists. I've made a start on chewing through some of those. And I've also obviously kind of watched and read various bits of the Hugo finalists over the last year when they were actually coming out. And so 
we're going to talk a little bit about what on the ballot that we have read, what we're planning to read, uh, what we enjoyed and what we didn't enjoy out of the stuff we know about. And so the thing we're probably the most well up to date with is the best dramatic presentation categories, which I think uh, the three of us have, 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 have watched most of. So shall we start with long form? Yeah, I've seen everything on BDP long form apart from Star Wars, which I did mean to go and see. But it came out at the point when I was about to go off on a long holiday back in the times when I was allowed to get on planes for a long period of time. And the reviews came out and everyone said, oh, it's fine. Or, oh, it's all right. Or, oh, it's not that great, really. And I thought, fine, I'll just go and see it later. And then I never got around to it. So I haven't seen it. I understand it's fine to bad. I really liked it. It made me laugh and grin and clap and do all of those things. I can entirely understand why people might not have liked it. I think it is not a well-made movie, but it is a fun movie. And I thoroughly enjoyed myself when I watched it. I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed Endgame, and that might be controversial. Endgame's plot fundamentally made no sense to me, and no one else seems to have this problem. Which is weird, given the number of people had a problem that Last Jedi had a hyperspace jump in it. But like... I don't know, the time travel and endgame was just nonsense. And I don't... I, I, I liked it, it was fun, it was a good ride. Time travel is nonsense in all films, apart from Looper, basically. So I Whoa, just... Whoa, thought... 12 Primer, Monkeys? Primer. Sorry, yes, I did mean Primer, not Looper. Time travel in the first Terminator movie holds up very well. It's just that Terminator 2 went back and ruined it. Shall I go back and do... Sorry, shall I go back No, we're not going to let you undo your mistakes, Liz. This is all going straight in. I have the same reaction every time I see a J.J. Abrams film, which is that I leave the cinema going, I thoroughly enjoyed that. He did justice to the franchise that he is working in. And then over the next few hours or days or weeks, the critical part of my brain goes, well, did he really? All he has done is parrot and ape bits of it without adding to or extending them in a way that is clever or interesting. He just serves up fan service that is the cinematic equivalent of a shoe bun. And I'm not saying I don't like shoe buns, but I feel that this was the culmination of a series that I've been watching since I was 12 years old, and we deserved a little bit more than that, especially given that the second episode had done quite a lot to say we are taking this in a direction that isn't just giving adolescent men in america what they want so i've got two reactions to that which is firstly i think that take on the two abrams star wars movies fundamentally ignores one of their greatest strengths which is i think the characterization in both of them is the best characterization in any of the star wars movies i especially think that's clear in the first act of rise of skywalker where the interaction between ray and poe and finn does an awful lot to tell you how much time has passed and how much they've gone through in between last jedi and rise of skywalker in a way that doesn't need to be written down because it's all there in the direction and the acting and i actually think abrams is the best director that has ever directed a star wars movie which may be controversial uh and i think last jedi was fantastic i do enjoy last jedi i do wish that they hadn't decided 
to fundamentally reanalyze what it is to be Star Wars in the eighth part of a nine part series, because I think that made it very difficult to tell a coherent story. I think if the eighth part of your series is suddenly like, but now what about something completely different? There are problems there. And I think the other half of what's wrong with Rise of Skywalker is that it is very difficult to work out how you get from the end of The Last Jedi to the end of the nine part saga in a way that's anything approaching um, narratively satisfying. Um, I do think that Rise of Skywalker had some absolute bobbins in it and it reminds me a little bit of some of the Russell T Davis work on Doctor Who where you've got the bit at the end uh, spoilers for those who haven't seen Rise of Skywalker um, but there's a bit at the end Liz do you mind if I spoil Rise of Skywalker? No go for it go for it go for it There's a bit at the end where the Emperor basically uses force lightning on an entire solar system and it's a bit like did we need that? No if we did need that did we need a little bit of text that explained why that was okay probably um i didn't mind it it wasn't great it's but abrams does this he he does the infinitely ratcheting up the stakes uh which does cheapen the stakes in the earlier movies which is a shame um but generally speaking i thought it had flaws but i, I did generally generally really enjoy it i still think the best of the three pre uh the best of the three sequel movies is the force awakens which i thought in many ways was almost perfect and i thoroughly enjoyed um but that is my take can we agree that you should not give the hugo to to it i i would suggest at the end of this segment we decide who we should give the hugo to i have ideas neither of them are rise of skywalker so i am not arguing that it should be the hugo victor haha the hugo victor victor hugo it was a pun i have not seen the two episodes of the marvel cinematic universe extruded product because it is getting very large and life is too short actually you only need to watch two movies and two television series a year or something and you're all right but that i generally enjoy the mcu i enjoyed captain marvel although in a way it was like, okay, this is maybe the 10th or 12th superhero origin story in the MCU I have seen. And the exciting bit is now that they keep setting them in different random decades so they can have a different soundtrack and you can go, oh, it's got some 90s things in. But I did, I did still enjoy it. I would probably go and watch another one. I was thoroughly entertained for two and a half hours or whatever it is. And it is nice to see a female lead. Yes, Brie Larson is someone i really like and so i i liked her in it i will say so i think i think allison's point about it being the extruded marvel cinematic product which is a very evocative metaphor which i love i think it's true and i think it's difficult because i think one of the really shining things the mcu has done and whether or not you like the way it's done it it's really interesting that they've taken a story and told it over a series of 20 movies with ancillary material because i don't think that's really ever been done before and the closest you've probably got is james bond but that doesn't tell anything near a single story um and so i think i think in some ways the mcu is actually really revolutionary in a way that people aren't really talking about but i think part of that is because it is really revolutionary at telling a story where a lot of the beats are repeated and I can definitely see why there are people who are getting to the point where they're like, this is a bit... I, I have gotten to the end of my patience with this. Compared with most people I know, I have very low tolerance for the same story being told over and over with bigger bits over series. Um, television series as well, I also struggle with this. Um, 
uh, and we will get to why I think the two short television series are my favourite things of what I have so far seen. I thought Good Omens was rather good. I wasn't particularly expecting it. I mean, I kind of knew it was in production. I think that they did it in a way that did not overstay its welcome. I think that the fact that Gaiman was on board probably helped sharpen the script to match modern sensibilities because Good Omens is 30 years old now and there are there is a lot of subtext in that novel that is not made anything like as clear as it was made in the series. I thought a lot of the ways that they used animation and time travel and all of that sort of thing were very clever and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And of the ones I've seen on this list, which, as you know, is not very many, it's my second best. I also enjoyed Good Omens. I I think I first read Good Omens when I was 10 or 11 years old and I loved it. And it remains, you know, a book I have reread many times over the years and still really enjoy. And while I liked the TV adaptation... It is almost too faithful to the books. It felt to me like there was too much trying to keep a lot of the actual wording of the books in by having some pretty unnecessary narration. Narration from God and some of the bits they kept in, I think you could have cut entirely. And also I think some of the bits with, uh, yes, I think some of the stuff with Sergeant Shadwell and Madam Tracy has not aged particularly well and it's really noticeable in the show minor spoiler the bit where Aziraphale sort of takes over Madam Tracy's body works much much better in the books because in the tv show it just puts Michael Sheen out of action for an episode so I would really have liked to actually if they trimmed it more maybe trimmed out some of the um, bikers of the apocalypse trimmed out these bits that I think don't work as well on screen and it was almost too faithful but it was way way better than what i feared we might get so i can't complain too much so i will say i think i agree with you i think it was too faithful i think they should have taken more liberties with it and i and i am also in the same boat that i i think i read good omens when i was 10 or 11 and it remains a very very fond memory it was the book that introduced me to both pratchett and gaiman's writing so it will always have a, a place in my heart um i think i agree with you that they needed to do more to make it into a TV show rather than into a uh, TV version of a book. Um, I will say that I thought the chemistry between most of the characters was amazing and I thought the actors did a tremendous job. I am happy that Michael Sheen and David Tennant are getting a lockdown TV show together, uh, as far as I can tell, off the back of the fact that they were good together in Good Omens, which is uh, Chef's Kiss. I thought Jack Whitehall was very good, which surprised me because I was expecting not to think he was very good. The thing you said about the Bikers of the Apocalypse is really interesting because my main problem with that is that they cut out all of the funny bits and left in all of the other bits. And I think they really needed to decide whether they were going to keep the hilarious other four bikers, which made it work, or whether they were going to really slim down that whole thing. But they sort of went for a middle road where they took the funny bit out. And that, I'm not sure... And I do wonder whether that's because it was Neil Gaiman that was overseeing the adaptation and not Terry Pratchett. Because I wonder whether some of the more out there funny bits of good omens were more on pratchett's side than gaiman's shall we say but generally speaking i thought it was very good i'm not sure it's my favorite of the roster but but i really liked it gaiman is very good at whimsy but he is not a humorist in the way that pratchett was and 
very little of game and solo output is laugh out loud hilarious. So I think you can reasonably assume that everything properly funny in Good Omens comes from Pratchett. Everything that's properly funny and I think properly sort of sharp humour as well seems to be me to be more of a Pratchett thing than a Gaiman thing. I mean, obviously, this is all speculation and we may be entirely wrong, but it seems reasonable from what we know about the two um, authors. With a bit of luck, we'll get a lock from Neil Gaiman telling us how wrong we are. (laughs) Yes, Neil, please write in and tell us how we've gotten all this wrong. We would love to hear from you. I really liked Russian Doll. I liked lots of things it did. And I liked the fact it just... I think I hadn't noticed when it came out that Netflix was in the habit of just sticking up some stuff that was quite out there. And I like that Russian Doll is... I don't think it's, like, hugely original, but I like the fact that it was clearly quite cheap to make, and so, therefore, it doesn't have... When you read novels and they're great and interesting and weird... You think, well, if this had been made into a film or a television series, people would have shaved bits off the edges to make them fit more tightly into a mould of what they think extruded cinematic product should be like. And Russian Doll absolutely doesn't do that. It's got a load of characters and they're quite wild and they do a load of things. You know, a heroine is actually spectacularly not particularly nice in a way that is not that common, even in the more elaborately varied television that we get now and it's short so they made quite a short amount of it and it tells a whole story and then it's done and i don't know if they're planning to do any more obviously when things are a big success on netflix they tend to do a second series and that's a little bit of a shame but it feels like it told a whole story and it was done and it was and it had lots of proper science fictional content which even now even with all the science fiction that's around us all the time we don't get as much of that as we maybe should and i thought it was funny and entertaining and i that's what i want from my long form dramatic presentation thank you very much and don't necessarily get it though it was kind of it's kind of eight short form dramatic presentations so it once again demonstrated that the hugo categories are very complicated i think i would say that it feels like something which fits much better in long form than many series which have been nominated in long form because I think it does tell one complete story over eight episodes and that's one reason why it's so satisfying to watch. Without spoiling it, it is not a concept that is entirely new. I did think that it is quite innovative in that it is a very dark comedy in a way that you don't often see US kind of situation comedies do and the bleakness of it and the humor of it was really refreshing i really liked that i think it's relatively unusual for comedy to be taken seriously it's relatively unusual for genre to be taken seriously so the fact that this was a genre comedy that was taken seriously was really pleasing and i think stands in opposition to the good place which is another genre comedy that was taken seriously but has a very different feel in terms of its optimism to russian doll And so I'm really happy that Russian Doll is on the roster. And I think it's one of the two that I would be the happiest to see win. And what is the other one, John? The other one I would be happy to see win is Us, directed by Jordan Peele. I have not seen Us, but I do want to. And I suspect it's quite good just because everything Jordan Peele has ever done is good. 
so we will not be spoiling so that Alison does not have to put her fingers in her ears and shout la 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 because I do not want to have to edit around that. So, Liz, can you spoiler free discuss what you liked about us? I think what might be funnier is if I did it with spoilers and elaborate hand gestures and um, Alison had to put it on mute and just watch me, you know, <laughs> m- mime the entire film. But that would probably not be much fun for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I I will not be doing that. Alison, you can put them back in. <laughs> I, I feel that would be too boring for the listeners. I think the best part about us was when the Hoff turned up. No, um... <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, I liked it. I don't watch a lot of horror films, but I did find this one to be uh, scary, but in a really sort of plot and character driven way, if that makes sense. Like it felt like a slasher film, but with something really deep going on under it. I think the acting is fantastic. I don't think it's really spoiling anything because it's in the trailer to say that there are lots of doppelgangers involved. And I think all the acting of the people with their doppelgangers is amazing. You can always tell who is who, even if they're not speaking. The acting in it is phenomenal and the direction is phenomenal. But I also think it is creepy in a way that I find most horror movies are not but I think both Us and Get Out are incredibly creepy movies that made me feel really uncomfortable in a really nice way that's gonna sound weird but like I enjoyed the feeling of uncomfort I had while I was watching them they really got under my skin and I really enjoyed them I think Us is really really great and I think you can see that Jordan Peele's background in comedy is helping a lot with his ability to do the timing. I think his sense of comic timing is helping him a lot with the pacing and the way he can make you feel uncomfortable through the film. I really liked it. I would be very happy to see it win. I would highly recommend watching it. Me and Espana bought Us and Get Out on iTunes for 15 quid because they've got a bundle at the moment. We thoroughly enjoyed watching um, Us the other week. So what do you feel should win, based on the ones you've seen anyway? Of the ones I've seen, I've seen I'd be voting for Russian Doll. For all the reasons about things not overstaying their welcome and, and telling a story in the right amount of space that I've seen. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that Us is well up there as well. And I also like Good Omens. Do you want to rank them in, in order, Alison? Like, as you would on your ballot? Of the ones I've seen, I've only seen three of these, haven't I? She has ranked the three she's seen, I think. Which are um, Russian Doll, Good Omens, Rise of Skywalker. Sorry, I I should say more clearly. Russian Doll, Good Omens, No Award, Rise of Skywalker. Fair, fair. What will you be ranking them, Liz? You've put me on the spot now because I hadn't thought about my lower ranked choice voting. (laughs) I think number one is Us. And probably Russian Doll... I'm going to have to think about it some more. There's things I love about Good Omens and Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame, but I really need to think about it some more and how much of it is. Am I judging Avengers Endgame as a film or am I judging Avengers Endgame of the 20th in a series of 20 films? I think this is actually a really interesting question because I kind of wish that the Marvel Cinematic Universe had been nominated as a single dramatic presentation long form, like the whole thing from Iron Man to Endgame. (laughs) Because if that had happened, I would have ranked it one. 
But as it is, I'm going to put Russian Doll, then I'm going to put Us, then I'm going to put Good Omens, then I'm going to put Captain Marvel, then I'm going to put Rise of Skywalker, and then I'm going to put Endgame. Because I fundamentally didn't feel like Endgame did a good job of wrapping up the MCU. I think a lot of people liked it because it had a lot of fan service in it, but I just didn't think it held together as a movie very well at all. But did enjoy seeing it in the cinema, and there are some really good bits. I, I I enjoyed all of them is the problem. I wouldn't put any of them below no award. We may we may get on to discussions of when you would put something below no award, but this is not the category where I would. Yes, okay, I'm probably being a bit harsh. I just would be so sad if it if we got to virtual Con Zealand and they gave the Hugo to Rise of Skywalker. And I do think it's a very significant risk because I think there are a lot of people at the Worldcon who've been watching Star Wars movies for forty years and would like to see an award for that. I think that's a good point because I think if Star Wars and Endgame are going to get ranked on the entirety of the sagas they belong to instead of as individual works, it becomes much harder to predict what the fandom is going to give the Hugo to. So I think if people don't do that, it will go to either Russian Doll or us. I think if they do do that, then Endgame's got a really good chance of winning, is my thought. Although Good Omens has a lot of fans, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Good Omens could steal it. I wouldn't want to bet money. Oh, Good Omens really does have a lot of fans. It really does. Okay, so we were going to discuss Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form, but it turns out we had a lot of thoughts, and so we're going to leave that for a future episode. Do we want to touch on staying sane in the apocalypse? My method of staying sane in the apocalypse is having discussions with you two about the minutiae of Disney-based marketing schedules. (laughs) How are you both coping? COVID-19. I do find that making sure that I'm having chats with my friends and not only that, that I'm making sure that those chats go in different directions so that I'm talking to different friends about different things on different occasions is really important for me and that I do set up Zoom chats where unexpected people are talking to each other because I think you get if you're always talking to the same people even if you frame it around a board game or a quiz night or whatever you inevitably get to the point where somebody goes have you have you been anywhere nice recently and the other person goes well I went for a nice walk in Bluebell Woods at Castle Barnard and and then you realize that there's only so much you can say about walking in Bluebell Woods it's not true but you actually run out very quickly of things to talk about, even though we've all been watching things and doing things. Whereas if you actually get some different people together, you can actually start to have the the meaty conversations about, you know, everything else in the world. Because people from different countries and people in different situations do have different experiences and they're good. I think I've been doing much the same. Have you been talking to a plethora of people, Liz? I mean, I have, but that's because I also went out and had socially distanced outdoor coffee with some people yesterday because we are on a much freer schedule, I think, than you guys are at this point. Caroline came round and had a coffee at my house and I did not think we had broken any rules, but it turns out that we did. She came to my house and put six Georgette Heyer novels on my doorstep whilst in the process of doing other errands which are legal. And then she went and sat in my front garden some distance away from the house and I came out with a polypin of beer which I was selling her and put it on my recycling bin and then we had a cup of coffee together um, at about three metres apart which I thought was completely legal and fine now but it turns out we needed to actually walk into the street because you could only do it at this in an outdoor 
public place. So if we'd had done exactly the same thing, but I started off by putting two chairs in the middle of the road, we'd have been good. Fair enough. But as it was, it was legal. It was great fun, though. I've got to the stage where every time you see another human being, you're like, oh, this is amazing. It's a person. We can drink coffee. We can have a conversation. Yeah, we we have in our garden, we have a fence which is short enough that if we sit in the middle of our garden and our neighbours sit in the middle of their garden, we can shout at each other while having lunch. And that is quite good for conversation. It does it does need you to shout. You can't talk normally, but it it works quite well actually. We're probably about three or four meters apart, I would say. But yeah, uh, it's it's not bad. And then I've also been having Spanish lessons from my sister-in-law, which has been fun. It keeps you occupied. And I really, really hate talking in Spanish. Not because I don't like Spanish, but because, as listeners will have noted, I talk quite a lot. And uh, talking and being unable to say the thing you want to say because you don't know how to is a very frustrating thing. I think if you talk a lot, I'm finding it really difficult. But I am persevering and it is, it is quite good so far. This is why extroverts struggle with language learning. Because you know you have all these things to say and it's incredibly hard to say them. And then you do language learning and I've got to the stage where I can read quite a lot of Japanese now but cannot say anything in Japanese and that's it. And that's really embarrassing. You're learning Thai, Liz. I am. Yes, I'm, I'm having online language lessons and one of the problems is that it can sometimes be quite hard to hear and one of the key things that we are supposed to be learning right now is how to read the different tones from the different combinations of consonants and vowels. And so what it actually leads to is me saying something and then doing a hand motion to prove that I do know what tone it's supposed to be in, even if it's not possible to hear over Zoom exactly what tone I'm using. So there's a lot of like hands going up and hands going down and hands representing rising and falling tones. It's quite funny. Excellent. And we can have a octothought where I speak in Spanish, Liz speaks in Thai, and Alison is the only one anyone can understand. And that will be fun. Absolutely, because you do need my hand gestures to tell what, what tone I'm supposed to be attempting. I can embed pictures of you doing them in the <laughs> podcast art. So I don't know whether listeners have picked up on this, but I, I put I put pictures in the podcast. So if you're looking at your podcast player when a certain part of the podcast plays, the picture will change sometimes you know, if there's a relevant picture to the discussion. And I could I could do second long chapters with Liz gesturing to indicate where her tone should be. And that would be a delightfully hacky way of solving the problem, I think. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to the sixth episode of the Octothought podcast. We will see you in a fortnight's time. Uh, but for now, I have been John Coxon, and it's goodbye from me. And I have been Alison Scott, and it's goodbye from me. And I have been and still am Liz Batty, and it's goodbye from me. Yay! <laughs> Yay, that's six episodes. That's amazing. Are we not are we eligible for Hugo yet? The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. Okay, so I think one of the really interesting things about the MCU is that they're doing this kind of two or three movie a year um, product where they're doing um, movies which are 
in some ways very similar to each other and then occasionally there's a movie which is quite different like for instance the first Guardians of the Galaxy felt quite different or the Ant-Man films feel quite different but then other films feel quite similar um, and one of the really interesting things is that they did try that with Star Wars they released Solo which was an attempt to do a heist movie that felt different from the saga and it was relatively poorly received by the fandom and and financially and I think they have have almost decided to retreat from doing um, a lot of movies into the realm of TV. So they've announced um, they're doing the Obi-Wan Kenobi TV series, they're doing The Mandalorian, um, they've brought The Clone Wars back. Um, I'm sure they've announced something else that I'm forgetting. Um, but a lot of what they're doing in Star Wars seems to be more on the television slash book slash comic side. And they seem to be really hesitant to try and make a Star Wars cinematic universe. And I think it's really interesting the way that marvel has been able to tell this multi-movie story but when star wars tried something similar i think it was quite poorly received and i am wondering how that's going to impact lucasfilm and marvel's decisions going forward from here because for whatever reason i think they're in quite different situations with regards to their fan bases and i'm not entirely sure why well i I think part of that is that Basically, the film landscape is just too crowded for Disney right now because they have Marvel films, they have Star Wars films, they have Pixar, they have Disney animation, they have their live action remakes of Disney animation. And they're in a position where if they're not careful, they will start cannibalizing their own audience. But in a way, I think it's also just that Solo was highly anticipated and not that great. I, I, won't say that. I mean, I, I think I would also cite Rogue One here, which is also a sto- chance to tell a different sort of story in the Star Wars cinematic universe. And I think which worked completely on its own terms and was great. Um, so, you know, I think there is still there is more they can do here. I think I think I will push back a little bit on Solo being hotly anticipated. I I I'm quite. It may, it may surprise you to learn that I follow quite a few people who are fans of Star Wars on the Twitters, um, but I didn't see a lot of excitement for Solo, and a lot of people I follow were very sceptical that it was a story that needed to be told, and I think part of the problem with solo is that it was a prequel and i think star wars fans are very skeptical of prequels um i can't think why um but and i think one of the really interesting things as well was that because it came out five months after the last jedi the last jedi had only been out of cinemas for about six weeks when solo was in cinemas and i just wonder whether they should have pushed it back to the because because they had been trying to release all of these movies at summer and they had all been pushed back to christmas and solo was the first one of the new disney era where they managed to release it on time but i actually think releasing it on time was a huge mistake because it meant you didn't have enough time to build up that anticipation in between the last jedi and solo um it felt like the last jedi had only just come out really um and so i think i think there were a large number of missteps made and i but and i agree that i think and i don't know whether i'm right I think the reaction to Solo was much more because of the lack of marketing and the lack of thought about when to release it than it was about the quality of the movie because I think quality is almost irrelevant when it comes to blockbusters and that's not just Star Wars it's like there's a very pessimistic view of all movies yeah they had a very serious not Harrison Ford problem too 
I watched the Star Wars movies when I was very young in like the 90s and I am not as attached to Harrison Ford as my parents are who were very appalled that Harrison Ford was not in it. Um, but I do wonder whether that's the other part. It's like a film that's designed to appeal to original trilogy fans, but it's a film that treads on the old trilogy's toes in some ways. Um, Liz, did you have any? I did have several things. <laughs> Can I say the several things I was going to say? Yes, say the several things. So one thing I would push back on that is Marvel released Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame two months apart. Um, so I don't think there's a reason you can't release these things in quick succession if you think the audience, you know, obviously there is an audience there for some of them. I mean, Avengers Endgame is kind of a special case, but it didn't seem to hurt Captain Marvel. People were not staying away thinking, oh, I'll go and see the next one or oh, I've just seen one. Um and my, I mean, my main issue with Solo is I don't think Alden Ehrenreich does a particularly great job, and I just found it to be not that entertaining, to be honest. So just to push back on that, Solo has a higher tomato meter score than Rise of Skywalker and a higher audience score than Last Jedi. So if we're going to say it's about the quality of the movies, I would have thought either Rise of Skywalker or Last Jedi should have been much worse in terms of box office than Solo. I am, and I appreciate that the Marvel movies have been much closer together. And I don't know why I think the Marvel movies don't have this problem, but I definitely feel like there was a, a large reaction in the Star Wars fandom, which was, we don't need this movie, and a large a large lack of anticipation in a way that there isn't for Marvel. And so I agree on the face of it. I think it seems like you should be able to release Solo five months after Last Jedi. It should be fine. But I am, I'm just deeply unconvinced that I think it was anything to do with the quality of the movie. Because like I say, in some ways, Solo was better received than Episode Eight and Episode Nine, And it, and it did far worse at the box office. Like, far worse. I miss what you were saying about Last Jedi. Were you saying about it's, what were you run, rake, run, rake, rating Last Jedi by? So if you look at the Last Jedi, um, um, like audience reviews, Last Jedi got ninety percent from critics and got like forty percent from the audience. Uh, Rise of Skywalker got about forty percent from critics and about ninety percent from the audience if i recall correctly or it might have been lower on the audience side and then solo got about 70 percent on both and so if solo is worse and that's why it did worse then either last jedi or rise of skywalker should have done even worse and the fact they didn't i think is difficult to explain i think there is a quality based explanation which is that marvel at this point is an extremely solid reliable brand and they very rarely drop films people feel are duds so people are now reassured that if they go and see a Marvel film, it will probably meet at least a particular uh, high watermark and probably go higher. I don't think people are convinced of that for Star Wars films yet. And I think there's also the obvious problem with looking at The Last Jedi's audience rankings in that we know The Last Jedi is really not liked in a particular subset of fandom who are probably more likely to have gone and written reviews of it. We may be going too far into Star Wars versus Marvel. We I do. I have one on tiny this. more thing to say about Marvel, yeah. which is that one of the reasons I think that Marvel, the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe with all its entrails and tendrils is accepted and even loved for that by its audience is that it's actually coming from a source, which is its comics, which because Stan Lee invented the system of getting people to buy more product 
in comics by having all of these crossovers. This is what this is. It's always been doing this. It is the thing that is unique about Marvel. And so to some extent, they have just encapsulated the Marvel unique selling point, which is they don't just sell you stuff. They sell you a very large amount of stuff and you like it. That's actually that's actually a really good point. I think um, I, th- I think the fact that Marvel has source material that is tried and tested may also massively help. Um, and I, it's very, but I think I didn't. Sorry, I didn't intend to derail this into the discussion it's become. But I just, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm right. But I'm not sure it's obvious why Star Wars can't sustain the same level of movie releases as Marvel. And it could just be that Solo was empirically bad, but I am sceptical that that's the whole story, but I don't know. Um, and so that was all I was trying to... Um, and so that was Welcome all was to, to Octothorpe, where this week, in the absence of new news from science fiction and fandom, we are having a two-hour animated discussion <laughs> on Star Wars versus Marvel. It's definitely on topic, guys. <laughs> I, I think you are correct i don't think it that solo is it's not a bad film i just didn't enjoy it that much but i think had solo turned out to be a really really good film like a guardians of the galaxy level of quality or something like that then people might have gone ah they can make good films that are entertaining in between the the big trilogy films oh i was not expecting a close reading of the Mar- of marvel v star wars that was not where I thought this was going. Not sure it was that close a reading. Ha <laughs> ha! Ho ho! Fighting talk, Liz. Fighting talk. Johnny, you know, definitely like screen sharing with us deliberately. Yes. Look at this graph. Oh, I see. Okay. This is the lockdown spike in decks published per month on ArkhamTV.com, which I thought was interesting because. It just rockets. What's the graph? <laughs> oh, yes. I've been... You know how people say you should not extrapolate from your personal experience to, to the world in general? I've been extrapolating from the things my um, Facebook friends talk about. I have a fairly diverse, large... I mean, they're all middle class, obviously. But I have a fairly diverse, large group of Facebook friends. And I've been um, extrapolating like mad from my Facebook friends what they've been doing and it seems to work out and i have now noticed that it also works on gaming i think people are gaming about three times as much as they did before lockdown (laughs) yes but the thing you have to bear in mind alison is that i am responsible for how many arkham horror decks have you made john how many of those that spike is just you coming up with arkham horror decks uh actually no so okay so that is actually a very good question i will count it is not a trivial question shall we finish the podcast (laughs) <laughs> and then and then get onto the more fun like post podcast bits yeah 13 oh no it's just you is it oh shit. sorry <laughs> sorry i had not gathered john is responsible for the global spike in arkham horror decks public <laughs> the after show how many so yes yeah, so so three times as much gaming i reckon and that's based on how many of my hearthstone friends are online at any given time um 